tonight. Our God is so very, very good, and uh, I am uh, looking forward to uh, this lesson tonight. I, uh, I've had to miss the last two Wednesdays. Uh, the first one, we were over helping with uh, Bible school, and then last week on vacation. So, um, amen. Uh, this search for truth has been so good, and uh, you hate when you miss any portion or part of it, but we're going to pick up tonight um, in uh, lesson 11 on slide or chart number three is where we're going to start. I met with pastor on Monday for lunch and, and uh, got, got instructions on where he left off and where to begin, and uh, this is the place, but in preparing today and getting ready um, to teach this lesson, uh, we're, we're, we're talking about the end time. We're talking about the signs of the time. We're talking about the things that are going to uh, culminate the end of the age. And um, I, I, I just have a simple formula because a, a lot of times those horses, and I told Pastor this uh, Monday, those horses in Revelation, sometimes they buck me off. Anybody else feel that way? <laughs> tonight, and uh, there's a lot of things because, because end-time prophecy is so symbolic, and, but, 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 but the Word of the Lord does simplify it for us and, and make things easy to understand uh, when we understand prophecy and put everything in context, and hopefully we can do some of that tonight. But before I get started, there, there's a real simple way to live for God in the end time. It's just, it's just my philosophy. And, and I'm going to tell you a lot more tonight in teaching, but if you will, Matthew 24 and 36 said, but of that day and hour, no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. No man knows the exact day nor the hour. We can't pinpoint it. We can't break it down and say this day, this time, the Lord is coming back. No man knows that, not even the angels in heaven. There's only one that knows that, and that is God. First Thessalonians 5 and 1 said, But of the times and of the seasons, brethren, I have no need that to write unto you. You know why? Because we know Matthew 24, 36. We know that no man can know that very day nor that hour. You can't figure it out. You can't calculate it down to the exact moment. And see, a lot of people want to understand the end time because they want to live any way they want to live and try to figure it out so they can rush in and get right with God right before this thing wraps up. Now, when he said that in Thessalonians, this is the way I read that. But of the times and the seasons, times, talking there, is a specific space of time or a specific amount of time. Seasons basically meaning the same thing. You know what matters in the space of time, the seasons and the times? My lifetime. So this is what he's telling me. Concerning your life, you don't need to really be worried so much about this because you already know that you can't pinpoint it down to the exact moment or the exact day. So just live right, do right, obey my word, keep my commandments, come on, do what you're supposed to do, and everything's going to take care 
of itself. So you don't have to be a great student of eschatology or the end time and know everything. You don't have to understand everything symbolically or whatever it may stand for and mean in the word of the Lord. What you need to know is you need a purpose in your heart to do the things that are written, to do the things that are commanded. Come on. And then you're going to be ready to meet him. And that day's not going to catch you. Off guard, or unaware, or as a thief in the night, amen, because you have prepared for it. So that's just my little take, and uh, for whatever that's worth, uh, that's how I kind of live my life. I do try to study these things. I try to be able to give an answer if someone uh, asks me a question. But at the end of the day, uh, they say some people are, are, are pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. Uh, Brother Larry Booker said at one time, he said, I'm pan-trib. He said, I'm just going to live and do what I know to do and everything will pan out. Amen. So let's just do that and understand that God is good. He's for us. He doesn't want anybody in this building to be lost. He doesn't want any of us to enter into the wrath and the things that we're going to talk about and study tonight. That's not God's will for any of us. And I'm so thankful for that as we begin this lesson tonight uh, to understand. So we are going to start, we're going to pick up on chart number three. And uh, this chart uh, deals with the signs of the end, and it talks to us about the nation of Israel. And you got to understand that um, Christ talked to um, his people. He talked to uh those that were there while he was here on earth, uh, they, they asked him about the end time, and, and he talked to them uh, in, in a parable about the fig tree. And throughout the scripture, the fig tree has symbolized the nation of Israel. And Jesus said that the generation living at the restoration of the Jewish nation, or Israel, would witness Christ return. Now let's talk about what that means. Luke 21, 29 through 31, this is a scripture. He said, and he spake a parable, uh, he spake to them a parable, behold the fig tree and all the trees when they now shoot forth, ye see and know of your own selves that summer is now nigh on hand. So likewise ye, when you see these things come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. So he used the parable of a fig tree. We've got a, a piece of property that we mow. This gentleman's got a big fig tree on there, and it's just busting right now. And I make a pass with my mower, and I get over by that fig tree, and I pull one off, and I eat it on my, on my pass because it's the time, right? It's the right time. There are days we go by there, it's not the right time, but, but now's the time. And that's what he was saying. When you see this stuff, just understand it's as simple as the, the fruit trees come into season. You can look at this stuff and it'll make sense. Psalms also declared that Jerusalem's rebuilding would be a signal of the Lord's soon return. Uh, Psalm 102.16, when the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his Glory. Now, here's what that means for us. 1918 
The Balfour Declaration was signed by Great Britain and Israel, permitting the Jews to return to Palestine. And on May the 14th, 1948, Israel became a nation. All right. So 1948 was the beginning of the last generation. If we look at what the scripture said, because Luke said this, 2132, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. Now, if we look at that from anybody that was born from 1948 is going to be here when the Lord comes back. If you were born in 1948, how old are you today? That's 52 and 22. That's 74. That generation's getting close, isn't it? The coming of the Lord is close. I feel tonight. I believe. Because I believe tonight we are of that generation that's going to see the return of the Lord. Amen. Watch the progression of Israel. In 1917, there were less than 25,000 Jews in the land. By 1922, just five years later, there were 83,000. By 1935, 300,000. By 1945, over 500,000. And today, the population goes in excess of 6 million are now in Jerusalem. The star of David flies gloriously over a nation of miracles. She's proven Ezekiel's prophecy. The scattered bones have regathered and restructured to become a thriving, prosperous nation. Israel has been restored. Watch God here. Here's a couple of things that come from the Word of God, some prophecies that back this up as well. Isaiah 35 and 1, the wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall, re shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. Did you know that Jerusalem is uh, their second biggest exported item that comes out of Jerusalem? It's the rose. Fulfills the prophecy given in Isaiah 35. Isaiah 27 also gave a prophecy. Um, it, it talked about Israel will be a major exporter of fruits. Listen to the scripture. He shall cause them that come of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Now, only a generation ago, the land was desolate of vegetation. Um, but as soon as the Jews were allowed to return, they started making improvements. And they took land that was marsh and swamp, and they drained it, and the land was graded, and it was cultivated, and it was worked. They removed big stones. They started to work. And today, forests have been replanted. Hundreds of thousands of fruit trees are producing. And Israel is now a major exporter of fruit to the entire world. Fulfilling the scripture. Further, Israel now has the superior rank of the most efficient agricultural nation in the world. These are things you might not have known. Israel 
has been restored. Tel Aviv, a generation ago, was a stretch of sand dunes, but now is a thriving metropolitan city. But Jerusalem is the capital and the cultural center of the nation. Why is that? Why is it Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem, more than any other city of the world, will play a prominent role in end-time events. Luke 21, 24. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. I'm going to read a lot of scripture tonight because when you start talking about the end time and the things of the end time, there are a lot of opinions. And... I'm not so interested or concerned with someone or anyone's opinion. I want to see what the word of the Lord has to say. So I'll be reading a lot of scriptures tonight to try to uh, weight down some of the things uh, that I'm going to uh, say in this place uh, tonight. The recovery of old Jerusalem in June 1967 is perhaps the greatest fulfillment of prophecy in our times. On June the 5th, 1967, the Six-Day War broke out. And from the heights of the old city, uh, they started firing artillery shells. And for two days, they targeted homes, public buildings, hotels, anywhere where people, a lot of people, would be gathered together. They just bombarded them. And uh, so while they were doing that, there were Egyptian forces that were working on the outside. But as they were doing the bombing, the Egyptian forces were deteriorating. And the uh, uh, Egyptian desert forces were utterly overthrown by the Israeli Air Force. And it gave them an opportunity to then go and fire freely upon the guns that they were using to shell Jerusalem. And so within two days, Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives, Bethlehem, and all the West Bank were back in control of the nation of Israel. And that meant after 1,897 years, Jerusalem was again controlled by the Jews, signaling that the times of the Gentiles had almost expired. But the triumphant return to the holy city uh, has been a little bittersweet, right? Uh, Israel's neighbors were never happy about them returning to this place of power. They were never rejoicing with them over restoration of their homeland. Uh, but that's not a surprise because Christ predicted that the Jewish people would recapture Jerusalem in Luke 21 and 24, and then he gave them the, the, the sad note of that, that hatred for the chosen nation would be revived to new extremes. Isn't that just like the devil? God starts blessing you and everybody get mad. You start getting a little favor, things start looking good your way, and everybody, everybody gets, you, you, you being hated on. You, you don't even know what you did. You're looking around thinking, what in the world? This is the people of God. 
They're just reclaimed what belongs to them. They've just reclaimed their own land. You would think everybody would say, yes, they finally got back what rightfully belongs to them. But no, everybody around them says, uh-uh, we can't stand for this. Just like the devil. Anybody remember Adolf Hitler? Well, he set out after him, didn't he? He decided he was going to wipe the whole race out. And though he was unsuccessful, perhaps he initiated maybe a new hatred for the people. Old Testament prophet Zechariah described Jerusalem as a cup of trembling and a burdensome stone for all people. That's Zechariah 12, 2, and 3. Headed by Russia, a group of nations are destined to war against this tiny nation. Ezekiel 38, we'll talk about this in a little detail. Ezekiel's prophecies concerning Israel and her enemies are so specific, they almost resemble a uh, geography textbook tonight. Um, Russia heads the great northern confederacy of Ezekiel 38 and 39, and there is really no um, debate about that. There's really no doubt about that. And there are three distinct signs that give positive identification of who Ezekiel was talking about. One, ancestral tribe names, anti-religious character, and geographic location. Walk with me just for a moment as I try to sort it out for you tonight. Ezekiel begins by revealing the leader's family tree and genealogy as God. Magog in his native land. He's also identified as the prince of the ancient people called Meshach and Tubal. Uh, Ezekiel 38, 2, 3. This is where I'm coming from with that. Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. So referring to the table of nations in Genesis 10, we discovered these people are actually sons of Japheth, who was the son of Noah. That's Genesis 10 too. And numerous discoveries pinpoint these tribal names, and it puts them right in the midst of the Russians. Jewish historian Josephus states that Meshach and Tubal founded civilizations in the northern regions, and Meshach is the root source for the modern city of Moscow. I don't want to bore you tonight. I'm just trying to establish through the Word of God who these players are that are going to rise up against God's people. Ezekiel also named Russia's allies in this mighty Conflict. This is Ezekiel 38, 5 and 6. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all his bands, the house of Togomara of the north quarters and all his bands, and many people with thee. Most Bible scholars agree that Persia is modern-day Iran. Um, when you search that out, uh, you'll find that Persia is best identified as modern-day Iran. 
Ethiopia from that scripture is derived from Cush, uh, who was the first son of Ham. And uh, this uh, signifies that numerous African nations are going to join uh, Russia's uh, onslaught or invasion against God's people. Um, Libya indicates more territory than just modern Libya because from the Hebrew, uh, the word Libya represents Ham's third son, and they occupy Libya, Algeria, Tunisia, and Morocco. So we see tonight that Russia's southern ally includes many nations. Gomer and all his bands is the eldest son of Japheth, and his descendants settled northward of the Black Sea, expanding southward and westward toward Europe. Hebrew designates this area as Germany. Gomer's bands represents areas bordering Germany, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, and Yugoslavia. Um, Ezekiel accurately described an anti-God block of nations who will become Russia's allies in the invasion against Israel. And finally, the prophet includes uh, Togomara and his bands. This is the grandson of Japheth. These nations possibly include modern Turkey, Armenia, and southern Russia. Here's the real deal. Bunch of folks don't like God's people being where God said they're going to be. But here's the question. Why would Russia and her allies wish to attack tiny little Israel? Certainly the largest country in the world doesn't need their land mass or their land surface. So what would compel this mighty nation to single out a small country of somewhere between five and six million people? Ezekiel said that it was greed. Ezekiel 38, 13. Art thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to take away a great spoil? See, you got to understand, God's people are always going to be blessed and they're always going to be provided for. It's as simple as that. We're talking about Israel tonight, but I'm talking about you too. If God calls you to do something and God gives you a, a, a task to, to accomplish, he is going to protect you. He is going to provide for you. He is going to make a way for you. God is never going to call you to do something within your own strength. He's never going to call you to do something within your own might. But if he calls you, he's going to equip you. Amen. I'm trying to put a little preach in this lesson tonight. Because we're not called to do this alone. In fact, we're taught that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. It's the very thing that confuses the enemy when it's something that looks so weak and it's something that looks so insignificant. But when it couples with his mercy and his grace and his calling and his anointing and his power, we become something the enemy just simply cannot contend with. You see, Israel was destined to become a very wealthy nation. 
She is without doubt the economic marvel of the world. The Middle East contains two-thirds of the world's proven oil reserves, and oil, don't we know it, is vital to modern civilization. Also, chemical resources in the Dead Sea are estimated to be worth more than one quadrillion dollars. I don't know how many dollars that is. I don't even know. That's a whole bunch of zeros, and my bank account ain't never seen that. But that's a lot. Amen? A final reason is Israel uh, is a land bridge to three continents. It connects Europe, Asia, and Africa, and every Israeli prime minister has, repeat, has repeatedly expressed fear of the Soviet Union. Why? Because according to, Eze to Ezekiel, the vicious paw of the Russian bear could strike them at any time. That's why we ask you to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, to pray for Israel, to pray for God's people. You know why? Because when those, that bear gets to poking around and he gets to messing with God's people, he's going to stir God up. And I don't know about you, but I, I still got some people that I love that aren't where they need to be. And, and I need just a little more time. I need some more time to talk to them. I need some more time to live in front of them. I need some more time to show them. Oh, come on, y'all ain't like y'all don't got none of them tonight. Amen. I'm praying for peace in that region. I'm praying for God's people to be blessed. Amen. Because as long as it's, it's Cadillacing over there, as long as everything's okay, we still got a little bit of time on this earth. Amen. Christ also predicted that after Israel had been regathered, a temple would be rebuilt with a holy place and the Mosaic system of blood sacrifices would resume. They're going to go back to the old way. Matthew 24, 15. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Paul indicates a new temple would be adorned with a new God. Listen to what he said, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4. Who opposeth and exalted himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. We're going to talk about the Antichrist and the beast in just a few moments, but many believe that the Jerusalem Great Synagogue, which was completed in 1982, will become the Antichrist temple and the scene of the abomination of desolation. There are a great number of Orthodox Jews who anticipate the, reinst the reinstitution of animal sacrifice in the very near future. Thousands of Levites have been trained and many are descended from the faithful priest Zadok because his descendants were the high priests that instituted or that carried out the sacrifice. Israel's been regathered and restored as a nation, but she has come in unbelief still rejecting her true Messiah. 
So the setting is complete for the man of sin, impersonating the true Christ to become the abomination who will bring desolation to the Jerusalem nation. So let's look at another piece of the puzzle. That just took care of all of that on chart number three. If you'll give them chart number four, let's talk about the beginning of the Gentile kingdoms. I know this is a lot of history tonight. Please uh, bear with me. I hope I hope we don't don't feel like we're in a in a lecture hall uh, tonight. Amen. Um, the beginning of the Gentiles. If you're wondering whether the next world superpower will be Russia, China, or the United States, you'll be fascinated to know that the Bible has already declared who it'll be. The narrative began centuries ago while the Israelites were held captive in the land of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar had undisputed dominion over a vast majority uh, of the known world, and therefore he had reason to wonder about the future. He wondered himself what other kingdoms could he conquer, what else could he gain for himself. And one night while he was asleep, the form of a great image appeared. So impressed was the king by the dream, he awoke deeply troubled, but before he could collect his thoughts, the dream faded from memory. You ever have one of those kind of dreams, really, really powerful? Woke you up, but before you could really pull it all together, it was, it was gone? Well, that was Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And he saw this, and it faded. And he got all his magicians, and he got all the wise men, and he said, somebody come in here and help me recall this dream. And everybody failed. And in a mad rage, he, he threatened to execute every one of the wise men that was on his court. But a man named Daniel stepped up and said, I can tell you what the dream meant. Amen. Thank God for somebody that understands what God's up to. The dream describes five Gentile world empires, four of them past and the other yet to come. First, we've got gold, which represents Babylon. The head of gold in this uh, uh, statue, and you can see it there, gold was the head. That represents Babylon. Um, this was the kingdom begun by Nebuchadnezzar. Then we step down, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here tonight. I'm just going to make sure you understand who we're talking about. Uh, then you come down, and you've got the silver, which is the Medo-Persian Empire, the second world domination uh, represented by the silver chest and arms typified the Medo-Persian kingdom that succeeded Babylon at the end of the Jews' 70-year captivity. Then we move down to brass. This represents Greece. The Medo-Persian kingdom continued until Alexander the Great founded the Grecian Empire in 334 B.C. This third kingdom was depicted by the brass stomach and thighs then we have iron, which represents Rome. Following Greece in the domination of Israel was the old Roman Empire symbolized by iron. The four kingdoms, what that means, the four kingdoms of Nebuchadnezzar's image, both in prophecy and in history, are Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Okay? 
So let's move down to those feet of iron and clay. Because this part of the image represents both the present and future rulership of Rome. We are presently living in the era of the feet. That's where we're at today. Soon, ten kings represented by the toes will arise to give their power to the Antichrist at the close of the age. A divided kingdom is seen in the feet. It's a divided kingdom. They're not together. Partly strong and partly weak, symbolized by the two materials of clay and iron. Clay represents rule by the masses, and iron depicts rule by the kings. These two forms of government will not mix, even as iron and clay will not mix. Iron will finally become predominant with kings again ruling inside the Roman Empire territory. Ten rulers will form a type of confederation, and together they will give their power to the beast. And back that up with Revelation 13 and 1. Try to make it make sense. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, a stone was miraculously cut out of the mountain without hands and smote the feet of the image until it broke in pieces. The broken image became like chaff and was carried away by the wind, but the stone became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. The final kingdom that will fill the whole earth is not of man or flesh at all, but it is entirely supernatural in origin because the stone is Christ and the rock upon which Christ is built. All right? And we are living in the last days, the time of the Gentiles. Uh, the book of Daniel is extremely significant. Daniel, I know, it can, it can throw you for a loop too. But you cannot understand the book of Revelation until you unlock correctly the interpretation of Daniel's prophecies. That's why we're spending a little time here. You got to understand what was being prophesied and then because Revelation is the fulfillment or it is the coming uh, uh, to pass of those things. Nebuchadnezzar's image became an outline for interpreting Daniel's later prophecies. In Daniel 7 and 8, various beasts or wild animals represent great empires headed by certain individuals. Both Daniel 7.24 and Revelation 17.12 reveal that horns atop the beast represent various notable kings of those empires. Babylon is symbolized by a lion with eagle's wings. Just going to give you their symbols tonight. Medo-Persia is symbolized by a bear, the same as the image of silver chest and arms. Greece is symbolized by a leopard, the same as the image's thighs of brass. Rome is represented by a strong beast with great iron teeth. Ten horns were, were on this beast, and later another little horn appeared for a total of 11 horns. In the last days, ten kingdoms representing ten horns and ten toes of the image shall arise from the territory of the old Roman Empire. 
Practically every Bible scholar agrees that this small horn of Daniel uh, 7 and 8 and the beast of Revelation 13 are the Antichrist who shall be reigning when Christ returns. So let's move to the next chart, chart number 5, the beast and his system. The the process of the Antichrist coming into power uh, will be a gradual process. It's, it's not something that's going to boom one morning you turn on the news and there he sits. Um, in fact, let's talk about where we live today. In fact, the Antichrist system has for years been conditioning minds, activities, and thought processes of the world's citizens. Many philosophies of this generation are part of an antichrist system. I want to first talk to you about humanism. The antichrist world system is the deceptive philosophy called or termed humanism. The belief, which is actually a religion, emphasizes man's wisdom rather than God's. Humanism is simply this. It encourages man to solve his problems independently of God. Anybody recognize that? <laughs> Don't Nobody needs the Lord anymore. I got my truth. I got my interpretation. I got my own walk with them. We used to say, you know, me and Jesus got our own thing going, right? If what you and Jesus got going don't match up to what the rest of his church has got going, you with the wrong Jesus. <laughs> Amen. This thing is not T-shirts and bumper stickers. This thing is not Jesus is my homeboy. This thing is not Jesus is my co-pilot. Come on, somebody. He's still the king of kings. He's still the Lord of lords. He's still the master. Come on. Everything is by him, through him. Come on, somebody. I'm telling you, we can't solve our problems independently of God. Everything that we have need of is only found through him. Amen. Uh, so that's a that's a a, 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 a doctrine or, or a belief system that is that is uh, messing up our world today, um, and, and and it's it's everywhere. Much of the legislation that we see today, our court decisions, our governmental policies, are openly antagonistic to spiritual values. Everything this world is doing today seems to oppose this book. Humanism is based on these premises. Listen to this. You'll recognize these. Man is basically good. Man is basically good. Now, the Scripture disagrees with that. Born in sin. Shaping in iniquity. Amen. 
Within, this is the next point, within man's own self is sufficient intelligence and ability to solve his problems and meet his needs. I got this. I knew someone one time, they were, they were, they were literally headed to their death. They were, they were going to, they were going to a surgery that they were told they could not survive. They made up their mind they were going to do it anyway. And some people went to pray for them. And they said, nah, it's okay. Don't need that. Everything's going to be all right. Don't need you to pray for me. They never recovered from that surgery. You need God. Humanism. Bases on this, no outside force or higher power need be consulted or expected, nor does any such power exist. There is no God. We're all, we're all here. We're all equal. We're all making it. Come on. Evolution is responsible for the origin of man. There is no life after death. Man should actively pursue the good life here on earth. These are premises of humanism. And this is the types of human rights that they advocate for. This is what they say you should be able to do, the humanists. Free use of pornography and drugs. What's it hurting? It's you. Just you. You ain't hurting nobody. Prostitution. Homosexuality, sexual permissiveness, free love, abortion, child's rights, oh my Lord, over parental control. Have mercy, Jesus. I'm going to be good and stay with this lesson tonight. But, 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 mm, I just grew up in a home where the kids didn't make the rules. I grew up in, in the house that said, as long as you live under this roof, as long as you park yourself at this table, amen, and they wasn't being mean. They was just letting me know, boy, we done lived a little bit. We done been down the road and found out where the bumps are, and you ain't even started walking yet. Come on, somebody. Look, I've never seen it. When parents start letting kids make decisions, especially in spiritual matters. And I ain't trying to meddle right here, but I'm just going to say what I feel led to say in the Holy Ghost. If your kids are upset with something, this is not a fellowship club. We don't come here because our friends come here. We don't come here because all the activities meet and match up to what we want it to match up to and meet. We come here because this is the house of the Lord. We come here because truth is preached. We come here because you can be saved. Oh, help me, Jesus. I'm going to be in trouble. I'm going to be in a lot, a lot of trouble. Amen. I've never seen it work out. I've been in this a long time. I've seen kids, they get upset. They want to go somewhere else. They want to do something different. And parents cave in. I've never seen those kids make it. Oh, Jesus, help us today. Because it was not given to them to make the decision. 
How in the world does a five or a six or a seven or an eight-year-old know what gender or identity they are? Come on, our world is messed up today. Our world has gone off of its rocker today. We need a revival. We need to turn back to truth. We need to turn back to God. We need to get our face back in a prayer closet and seek his face and seek his will and pray that he'll turn his ear back toward us. Because this is the spirit of this age and this is the spirit of this hour. It, it, it insists that these lifestyles reflect a positive moral change rather than a moral breakdown. Let's say that again. Humanism believes and insists that these liberal lifestyles reflect a positive moral change rather than a moral breakdown. Every time I see the word change, I start getting nervous. We need a change. We need a change. Something needs to change. What happened about the Lord that we serve who said, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. Behold, I change not. This word is forever settled. The things that you find here are not going to change to society's whims and society's beliefs. Amen. And so many of these humanistic views are prevalent. Guess where they're the most prevalent? They're the most prevalent in our public classrooms. <laughs> I, I'm in one. I know. Why is that? I'll tell you why it is. The enemy has a pattern of attacking the weaker vessel. Why is there so much emphasis on kids being decision makers and kids getting to decide things and all of that? It's, it's because the enemy is using that as the avenue to steer the home. No offense, ladies, but we learned that Eve was the weaker vessel. In the garden, it was his first way of attacking. And just like in, the, in that, he looked for the weaker vessel. Today, he's after our children. And, and you'll, you'll, you'll go into, into classrooms today, and you'll, you'll find that there, there, there's, there's a mounting campaign to erase all forms of Christianity from public schools and learning institutions in our country today. Courts have ruled it's illegal to display the Ten Commandments in a public school setting. Humanistic educators have plans for our children, for our nation. In 1973, listen to this, 1973, a Harvard University professor of education and psychiatry revealed the true intent of humanism in our educational process. Listen to what he said. I'm going to read you a quote. Listen to this. Every child in America entering school at the age of five is mentally ill. Because he comes to school with certain allegiances toward our founding fathers, toward our elected officials, toward his parents, toward a belief in a supernatural being, 
toward the sovereignty of this nation as a separate entity. It's up to you teachers to make all of these sick children well by creating the international children of the future. 1973, a Harvard professor speaking to teachers told them that every child entering school was mentally ill because of allegiances toward things like our founding fathers, elected officials, parents, belief in God, sovereignty of this nation, things that we used to pride ourselves on, things that we used to stand in distinction that separated us from the heathens of this world. Come on, somebody. Oh, my goodness. We need revival. Next, we deal with the European Union and our money system. I, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to spend much time here on our money. I understand that Pastor talked some about, a, about it. And, and I, left my, I left my card. I was going to bring a card in uh, for just a quick illustration. One thing I was going to show you. But you've all got debit cards, and most every one of them inside of it right now has a chip. Right? And the card has basically become just kind of like a fancy handle for the chip because all of that information is in the chip. But in time, this is where we're headed, that chip is going to be removed from the card, and it's going to be placed into your flesh. Okay, Revelation 13, 16, 17, and he calleth all both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or on their or in their foreheads, and that no man might by ourselves save that he had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. There's coming a time where we're gonna make our transactions with basically the technology that's in that chip, it's going to be implanted. And if you don't have that, you're not going to buy blood pressure medicine. See, we always think about, grow, well, I'll just go, you know, grow me a garden. I'll feed myself. I'll, I'll start raising, you know, cattle and chickens and do all this stuff. But Lord have mercy, look what we're dependent on in our, in our generation. Just think about that. Just think about that. Let's talk about technology. Daniel 12 and 4 said, knowledge shall be increased. I'm getting close. I got six minutes, and we got somebody to baptize tonight. Amen. Praise God. Isn't that exciting? I'm on I'm, I'm on, I'm on a, amen. That's great. We're excited about that. So I'm going to wrap this thing, pull it to a close, because I'd like you to hang out with us for just a minute while we get that ready. Go ahead and. Go up there and get ready. I'll be up there in just a moment, Sister Doris. Appreciate that so very much. God's going to do something great in this place. Amen. Technology. Daniel 12, 4 says, knowledge shall be increased. If you were to go back to the early 1900s, it would have been impossible for a one-world government to rule the world in the way Scripture teaches. But with modern technology, it's very, very simple to understand how it's going to happen in our day and hour today. 
truly knowledge has increased. While there's great benefit to modern technology, there's some very, very, very strong drawbacks as well. Amen. Satellites are going up all over the globe, replacing telephone cables so that anywhere in the world a telephone or computer can be used even in the remote deserts or jungles. Privacy of man is lost because these same satellites can take pictures of a license plate on a car and if so desired, they can zoom in on an individual and watch every move he or she makes. It's almost impossible to hide from them. Come on, somebody. The frequency between all of these things can detect a person within three feet of where he or she stands. Technology. This will suit the purpose of the Antichrist and help him connect the whole world together through a one-world computer system. And that's already in happening now. It's already in place right now. The world is rapidly moving. I said I wasn't going to say much about money, but we're rapidly moving toward a cashless society. Cash transactions will soon be eliminated. But I just want to say this right here. I'm so thankful to know the church is going to be raptured. The church is going to be out of here. We're going to be preparing for the second return of Christ. Come on. You'd be surprised today if you knew just how deep this system was already implemented and how deep this system was already operating in our world today. All of our computer codes run on this 666 formula. 90, here it is, 95% of all grocery items, the barcodes of those grocery items are now marked with the code 666. IRS is using it. Postal department's using it. It's a lot going on. Amen. Praise God. And then we're going to move into something called the New Age Movement. And this is going to um, uh, usher the Antichrist and his system to prominence. And there is so much to talk about from the New Age Movement that I think I'm just going to save it. And I'm going to go up here and get ready to baptize this lady that's come uh, to be baptized tonight. But there is so, so, so very much uh, in this lesson. We didn't make it to the end of it. Uh, there's about two more charts or so that's left that we'll have to pick up on. But uh, before I step out, is there any questions, any comments on anything that's been said tonight? Amen. I'll do my very best to answer your questions. Or we'll receive your comments. Yes, sir. You're reading something from there? I believe that's going to be after the church is taken out of here. Yeah. Yes, sir. Anyone else? Amen. Amen. Praise God. If our ushers are getting ready, they're going to uh, wait upon you tonight and receive our offering. I'm going to step up here.
would you would you hang out for just a moment tonight? We got one minute. Hang out. Let's baptize and uh, uh, see somebody filled with the Holy Ghost tonight. Will you help me believe for that? Amen.